Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Thanks for tuning in. I'm speaking to you from Montreal, Giogiage. On the program today, I'm going to be featuring an interview with author, educator, and activist Shiri Pasternak. Recently, she has worked on a collection with others called Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, Police Abolition in Canada. This is a collective work that comes at a time when there are growing calls to not just defund the police, but to dismantle structures of policing authority. In the Canadian context, Shiri talks about the ways that police structures are rooted in colonial history, violence um, towards Indigenous communities, and today how that is represented, not just for Indigenous people, but racialized communities, working and poor people, uh, people struggling with homelessness and precarity. This is an important work. I think it brings together a series of reflections, thoughts, and essays that speak to a moment in activism, and it puts them into a collective work that you can access. Uh, Again, the work is called Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, Police Abolition in Canada. Here's my conversation with Shiri Pasternak for Free City Radio. First to start, I mean, um, can you just uh, introduce yourself and just basically talk a bit about um, why you wanted to work on Disarm, Defund, Dismantle? Um, I think there's been so much organizing and uh, activism, obviously, around police violence, um, systemic racism in policing, uh, both specifically around indigenous communities but also black communities and people of color i think maybe one thing that comes to mind would be the ways that your book makes up for the lack of depth on on all the excellent organizing on social media that's happening but there's just not the space to really get into the issues that that you did in 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 your work so yeah if, if that if maybe yeah just introduce yourself and any thoughts about that point Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Shiri Pasternak, and I'm based here in Toronto, where I was born and raised. Um, first generation Canadian, and um, I'm also an assistant professor of criminology at Toronto Metropolitan University. And I've been a community organizer for about 20 years, um, maybe more. <laughs> and um, I'll tell you a little bit about the origins of this book. And hopefully in doing that, I can also, um, you know, radically decenter myself in the process because this was really a collective effort. And I think all the editors agree that what we did was curate some of the um, voices of people in the movement at a time when people were really eager and wanting to contribute. And the reason for that. And the timing of the book really coincides with the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. At the time, as you know, there were lots of marches across this country um, against police brutality, um, for the abolition of police. Some of it was connected to specific police killings. Um, There were about six murders in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder just across this country alone. Um, majority of them being indigenous people, but also black and mentally ill or mad people. 
as well. And one of the biggest clapbacks that we were getting from the media and from political pundits was that this was a copycat movement, that people in this country were, you know, seeing the marches and protests and political energy in the states and kind of mimicking it here even though the problem of racism was nowhere near the extent it was in the United States and there was nowhere near the kind of police brutality or police killing rates that you see in the United States. And so at the time, um, we had actually been organizing for two years for this conference on decolonizing abolition or I think it was called now I'm forgetting because it was so long ago it was so amazing it didn't happen because of COVID it was a pre-conference for the Native American Indigenous Studies Association and it was bringing together abolitionists from across the continent and across the world to come and talk about um, abolition and since we had been working on it for two years the best thing happened that could have, which was that we really created relationships and networks and trust. And those networks, even though the conference was canceled, really flared back up and people got in touch and were able to use those networks to continue organizing. Someone sent an email saying, you know, does anyone want to put a book collection together? That was Kevin Walby, one of the co-editors. And people were interested and then people kept adding more people and more people. And then as these things go, there's a high rate of attrition. (laughs) Eventually we were left with, uh, I can't remember now exactly the exact number, over a dozen um, amazing contributors and groups of contributors um, all speaking about abolition, not from an academic perspective. There's quite a few academic books and no shade on the academic books, but these, this collection I think is so, it's so amazing for me to read because it's speaking across the same intersections of movements that were in the room to really work across sectors towards a common analysis of the harm that police has on uh, racialized and other otherwise impacted and targeted communities. And I'm particularly proud that there's three um, contributions by sex worker groups, advocacy groups across the country as well, because, you know, this isn't a new movement and people coming into it may not know the ways that, you know, sex workers have have some of the most incredible protocols and um, community safety practices of like any, anyone else on the ground or any other labor movement. Um, And so you know, there are people who didn't make it into the book and there are people who did make it into the book. So there's something sort of random about it in terms of who had the time to commit. But I think in the end, uh, it ended up being representative in a really surprising and amazing way. Thanks so much for sharing um, that reflection on the process uh, around the book. I, I think that so often, you know, when we think about... Um, the ways that you know movements happen and also how those movements are reflected in publications it's very much um decentering the sort of long-term work that is involved in making that a reality um and so i'd just be interested maybe if you could share a bit more i mean you talked about um 
a number of issues. So maybe we could just draw out some of those specific points so we can uh, go into a bit of um, uh, depth on maybe three of the points that you mentioned. So the first one that really stood out was this challenge towards the idea that you know, Black Lives Matter or movements against police violence as it targets Indigenous people, movements against police violence as it targets uh, racialized communities and immigrant communities, and more generally the violence of policing, that movements and organizing in Canada are, are copycatting the energy political organizing in the U.S. I'm just wondering if you could underline why that uh, critique of um, the sort of the mainstream um, lack of recognition of the like long-standing organizing that has gone on within communities within the borders of colonial Canada. Why is challenging that important? Um, well, it's important for so many reasons. I mean, obviously the most basic reason and the priority is that it's just it's a it's a counterfactual to reality. <laughs> so people who have been targeted by police know this to be true. And it's time that, you know, uh, white Canadians are, um, I guess, decentered in being the ones who are the final arbiters on what is racism and whether Canada is racist, because often the people who are saying, Canada is not racist or people who historically would not experience racism. And so this is really a kind of transformative moment, I think, for, um, you know, a, a, across the country and in different ways and across different movements. But I think people having platforms to speak for themselves and to, you know, speak back against these mythologies of Canadian exceptionalism is just first and foremost the most the, the most important thing, um, like it's just the most important starting point, I guess, is just to say this mythology about Canadian um, diversity and acceptance and exceptionalism is just untrue. And the second part of why it's really important right now to interrupt or disrupt that Canadian narrative is because what's happening at the intersection between all these movements is this really complex and sophisticated and smart analysis about the relationship between different systems of systemic oppression. So for example, again, coming back to some of the sex worker chapters, the one by Elaine Lamb and Chanel Gallant not only talks about the role of police and the harm and sexual assault against sex workers that they perpetrate, um, but also a kind of proliferation of powers around that, like bylaw officers and politicians passing legislation supposedly to protect them. But it's also a chapter about the particular precarity about migrant sex workers and racialized sex workers as well. And that there are these intersecting axes of oppression, the migration status, um, labor status in a precarious, um, in a precarious labor market, um, perceptions of you know hierarchies of um, of civility and 
um, and uh, like acceptable professionalism, all that stuff is kind of at play in how the police get away with what they get away with in that context. And so what we found also in the years that we were mobilizing towards the conference that was canceled was just how rich our conversations were when we started to understand how our critiques against police could be made in a way that was in solidarity with other people so that we didn't end up reproducing the same kinds of colonialism or anti-blackness that we're opposing. Thanks so much for sharing all of that, Shiri. Um, so there's a, there is a bunch of points in your first response um, that I wanted to draw out, but I, I know that this is a big point, but I just uh, was wondering if you could talk about the complexity of the line that the political reality that is happening in Canada, where we see a lot of like colonial mainstream institutions like the CBC, for example, universities like McGill. I, I mean, I live in Geogiage in Montreal, right? So I see that happening with land acknowledgements or, you know, like uh, sort of a quote-unquote woke discourse where there is this effort to reach out and to um, basically incorporate uh, a lot of different experiences within colonial Canada on the surface. There seems to be a really limited response in terms of actually um, taking an in-depth, like like what happens in your book, an in-depth historical anti-colonial analysis seriously when it comes to why why this shift needs to happen it's almost like it's almost like um there's there's a fashion change but it's it's not really about the sort of systemic issues that you get into in your book so if you could share any thoughts about that yeah it makes me think about this analysis that i really appreciate and drawn a lot and it's um there's an article by political theorist robert nichols called the colonialism of incarceration. This is an answer to the question about sort of why we need to deepen our analysis into the foundations of police violence and the carceral system um, and to think intersectionally. And in the article, he talks about the fact that a lot of the critiques of the prison system and police within indigenous communities is quite different than you see in prison studies more generally. And the reason is because the framework we're used to hearing is there's a disproportionate amount, I'm sure you've heard this a hundred times, there's a disproportionate amount of Indigenous people incarcerated in Canada compared to other populations. And we hear this over and over, and that in itself is supposed to alert us to this great injustice that's happening. There's more Indigenous people than other people, sometimes hugely disproportionate, and that should tell us something about how unfair the justice system is. And Nichols argues, like, no, it's actually, that's kind of a manifestation of a deeper point. You know, it's not like if there was an equal proportion of Indigenous people incarcerated to their demographic population, that would be justice, right? That's like if you play the tape to the end of those arguments, that's what you get. And he's arguing, no, like if you actually take seriously the fact that from an Indigenous perspective, the legal system itself and the criminal justice system as a branch of that is an imposition of settler authority on Indigenous jurisdiction 
then you're getting closer to the heart of an anti-colonial critique of the prison um, and police systems. And Freelance Free Peoples write about this in uh, their chapter in the book, really excellent chapter that I highly recommend, that there's this kind of trajectory of incarceration that is about territorializing sovereignty and creating forms of containment of indigenous people because of the political threat they pose. That's different than other critiques of the police from other targeted communities. It doesn't mean that it's um, categorically uh, more important, but it's definitely foundational and it should inform all our other critiques of the police and prison so that we don't reproduce that colonial um, framework of the over-incarceration number, you know? And so those are the kind of conversations, that's the kind of um, dialogue and understanding, I think, that's being developed when you're sitting with people across movements, uh, working through together how to build this movement. Right on, right on. Thanks for sharing that, Shiri. Um, one point that comes to mind is a phrase that uh, Trudeau PM Trudeau always says, which is maybe on the surface, not seemingly related, but one thing he has always said is the environment and the economy go hand in hand. And there's like this double speak to that. And it's, I think, mirrors in a lot of ways, this idea that you can have it both ways, that you can sustain these um, colonial institutions of policing without getting to the roots of exactly what you're talking about around containment, around you know the the, the colonial um, infrastructure that really continues to be at play um, it seems like there's this idea that okay well we can incorporate woke discourse and incorporate an understanding that systemic racism exists but not change the f- fundamental structures at play yeah I mean I think I think this is where abolition movements really hold hands with other forms of political critique because abolition itself is not just as Ruthie Wilson Gilmore talks about and about an absence of prisons and an absence of police but it's about the presence of certain kinds of community and community safety Um, and once we start to get into that then there's a kind of huge range of kind of like forms of social organization that can provide safety you know you know there's anarchist ideas about a better world there are socialist and communist ideas about a better world even within those political traditions there's a huge amount of diversity as well um and so i think that's where we really get into the the (laughs) the good stuff not that abolition is not the good stuff but abolition itself has to be tied to a political political critique of what the presence will look like. And that's something that we work out together. Um, and it's something that I feel is a live conversation and a vibrant nerve running through the movements right now is about this kind of political education with everybody at the table so that you know you don't get these distorted forms of Marxism that um, don't think about race or gender, for example. Um, And these movements are by nature anti-capitalist for the reasons that you describe, that you can't actually just 
rearrange things superficially in order to get at these, um, you know, the underpinning hierarchies of racial difference that drive capitalism. You need to really think about how do you reorganize society so that you don't need to depend on these hierarchies to justify the inequality that's just enriching um, certain classes and impoverishing others. Thanks for sharing that, Sherry. Um, you talked about the process of this book and when we began this conversation today, and I'd like to maybe just go back to that point and underline a bit about the process. Um, people will hopefully engage with the book and read it and sort of see it as an object with ideas. But maybe can you draw out a bit the ways that these types of projects are an attempt to um, build the conversations that you're talking about. You talked about like the sort of through line of all these intersecting movements right now and how it's, it's a live conversation. It's not a historicized conversation. It's a process that's happening now. Um, I realize that's an important part of your work. So if you could share anything on this point, that'd be super appreciated. Well, I think, you know, the book isn't the work itself. It's a, I guess, artifact of the work that we do. It wouldn't be possible, obviously, if we didn't have stories and strategies to share. Um, in terms of what's happening next, there's a there's a number of really amazing um, abolition collectives. Uh, the Toronto Abolition Collective is the group that originally formed in 2018 to organize this conference. And, you know, we're still talking and meeting and thinking about what what the group looks like moving forward, how to move from a network to a, basically a conference organizing committee to a network. And we've done a series of things over the years, mostly um, redistribute the finances that we raised for the conference. Um, but we're thinking about next steps and how do you institutionalize in a way that's sustainable this kind of broad-based coalition of movements um, to me, this is a really important question. When we talk about it in the group, people are anxious about the idea of institutionalization, which is a word that really makes you think about a, a bureaucracy, a kind of bloated infrastructure that you know sucks the life out of movements. But think about an institution more like a house or a home. Like what place does... Um, the base of this organizing live? Like, how can we build a kind of um, a space that can hold all of these different movements and think about how to um, build solidarity uh, together stronger against s similar tactics, how to do geographic organizing ward by ward across the city, around police budgets, all these kinds of questions require a kind of organizing infrastructure. And so that's what we're thinking about now in terms of next steps. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, for the last question, I just wanted to um, ask a bit about this book in relation to listening and process, um, just underlining that point. Um, I, I engaged with your work, Grounded Authority, about the Algonquin um, anti-colonial movement, uh, Barrier Lake. Um, the book has uh, many aspects, but one part is clear is that you're, you were really thinking through how 
you engaged with the community. Uh, also, you talked about your own personal history in the introduction um, and your own family's history of immigration and relationship to Toronto. And with this work also, there's, it feels, um, you know, and please, please share any reflections on this um, around this point. It feels like there's also this line in activism where it's like you need the sharp demands, you need the systemic critique, but you also need to be open to listen and to process with people's um, voices from many different experiences. There's the contributions of sex worker voices in this book. There's the contributions around ways that Indigenous communities are particularly impacted by policing and the challenging of the Canadian nationalist narratives around exceptionalism. How important was listening in this book process? And when people engage with the book, um, I hope I, I would just see that they also would be listening to the voices in, in a sense. I'm going to be honest and say this was like a kind of bloodless revolution. We had never had a single Zoom. I think we had one Zoom call of the contributors the whole time. Otherwise, we kind of put the book together in the blur of the second wave which I barely remember um, because I was homeschooling two young people and working full time. And there was so, so many of us were involved in survival work, you know, raising funds for people who are decarcerating when all the halfway houses were shut down and the buses weren't running and they couldn't get home to families. There was so, people were involved in such critical time sensitive work at the time that there was just a lot of trust I think because we had spent and this is really unusual the listening and learning I think happened prior to the book and I think that's why the book was so easy (laughs) there was so much trust usually when people want to make do an event it's like the event is the thing that they're focused on but for us partly due to Craig's leadership he had a vision that we would spend instead um a lot of time up front craig fortier spend a lot of time up front just developing principles developing values developing conflict mediation principles um visioning what we wanted the space to feel like um doing tons of outreach to make sure the right people were at the organizing table um, having enough lead time so that people could get involved. And it wasn't like a, hey, like you have to show up now for the next two weeks or you're not part of the movement. You know, like there was a real conscientious and um, sensitive approach to organizing that built a lot of um, collective unity and mutual res- like accountability uh, for the two years leading up to the conference and so when the conference was cancelled like all those relationships had been built and were intact so it wasn't like a total loss and we still want to organize the conference but I think in that time that we spent together um, what's really remarkable is that we may not have organized the conference but we gained all these relationships in this new network and this book is just one manifestation of that 
Great. Uh, thank you so much, Shiri, uh, for your time. The book is Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, Police, Abolition in Canada. Shiri is one of the editors. You can find it through Between the Lines. That was a conversation with author and educator Shiri Pasternak, who has recently co-edited a book called Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, Police, Abolition in Canada. You can find that through Between the Lines books. Uh, I would recommend this project. Thank you so much to Shiri for taking the time to join the program today. Free City Radio Broadcasts Weekly. We air on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays, on CGLO 1690 a.m. on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. in Geogeague, Montreal, on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Treaty 1 Territory of the Métis Nation. That is airing on Tuesdays at 8 a.m on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario, on Wednesdays at 11.30, and on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, British Columbia, on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. You can find Free City Radio on Spotify and iTunes. Just look up our program, Free City Radio. Our archives are at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. I will go out on the program today with some music from the Halusi Nation. And I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for tuning in and take care. <laughs>